And Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to join in with your mission from all the way in our own backyard in Papua New Guinea to the other side of the globe in South Africa and many other places. And Lord, we just thank you for the people that you've called to be a part of your work in those countries. We pray, Lord, that your fire would spread throughout Papua New Guinea, throughout South Africa, all over the globe. Pray that there would be a mighty move of your spirit, that your name, the name of the Lord Jesus, would be exalted and lifted high. And Lord, we pray particularly for the mission works that we support. We pray for Naomi. We pray for the Hayes. And Lord, we ask that you'd strengthen them, that you'd encourage them where they need that, that you would provide practically. We pray for financial provision. We pray for uh, spiritual protection over them and the work and the people they're involved with. And Lord, we pray that you would accomplish all that you desire to accomplish in them and through them. Thank you that they are there for such a time as this. And Lord, we, we just pray that they would know the joyful service of the Lord. And as the Hayes have said, being in the center of your will for their lives. Lord, we pray for us this morning as well as we turn to your word. Would you encourage our hearts? I thank you for what you have for each one of us here today. We pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd speak to us, you'd touch us, you'd change us, you'd do whatever you desire to do for the glory of your name, Lord Jesus. We pray together. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible, now's the time to grab it out. We're going to head to the letter of 1 Peter. We've been studying this book. I want to start there. I want to go a couple of places. On this theme of Missions Month, remembering, of course, that we want to celebrate the missions works and give them an opportunity to uh, update us on what they've been doing in ways we can support and pray for them. But as a part of that as well, we want to be excited about the mission that each one of us is called to. And it may be that some in this room are called to go to South Africa, Papua New Guinea, to different corners of the globe. But probably for most of us, our call is here, in this city, from around the world to our call in Fishwick, the ACT, and that's what we want to discover and be excited about today. I can already feel the excitement. So Lord, help us. If you're in the letter of 1 Peter, chapter 2, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. We're not quite here, but I want to just bring out a passage that really details. See, we've looked a little at, uh, as Peter's described, grace in this little letter, this wonderful picture of grace. We've looked at what it is. We've looked at even how it works, as we've seen Peter, Peter's heart, not only for us to get a hold of grace, but for grace to get a hold of us, to transform the very, very inner core of who we are and the way that we live our lives. What we've not yet come to, which we will today and will continue to as we read through this little book, is understand the why. It's in the what, it's in the how, but why? What was in the heart of God as he came on this rescue mission to redeem you and I. Well, let's find out. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Many of those themes we've already covered, that were chosen, that were called. Some of them we'll expand upon in coming weeks. But the question that we want to ask is why. And Peter's description of the why is this. He has done that so that you may proclaim, say proclaim, proclaim, that you may proclaim the excellencies 
of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim, some translations say that you may shine the glory of, that you may testify to, declare the praises. The picture is the same, that there would be a proclamation, there'd be a declaration, there'd be an exaltation of the glory and the goodness of God. And let's just read verse 10. He goes on to say, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy received for the purpose of the exaltation, the proclamation of the glory of our God. So Peter's heart, as I said, is not just that we would get a hold of this grace, but the grace would get a hold of us, that it would transform us, and ultimately, grace that would leave us as a living testimony, a living proclamation, a living exaltation of the God that we worship. This is a glorious perspective that we see here. So we get the mercy, we get the grace. You have received mercy, forgiveness. We get the joy, we get the hope, we get the peace, and he gets the glory. He gets the worship. He gets the honor. He gets the exaltation. And so often I believe, I think this is unintentional, but we make the grace, so we make the mercy the end of the gospel. The grace and the mercy really is the means to the glory and the exaltation of who he is. If we make the grace and the mercy the centrality in the end of the gospel, what we end up producing is a man-centric gospel. We are the center of God's purpose and will. But God never says that. He says he is the center of his purpose and will. That the mercy and the grace is the means to glorify his name. That he would be exalted. Let's go to one more passage of Scripture. We can't talk about missions, and then there's three things we'll bring out of these two passages. Can't talk about missions without looking at the Great Commission. So let's look at Matthew's account of the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples, remembering that Christ has gone to the cross, he's risen from the dead. He is appearing to the disciples, and these are the final recorded words by Matthew before he ascends to be with the Father. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. There's a sermon there or two, but we'll move on. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you pause there for a moment and just put yourself in their shoes, what would you be thinking Jesus would be saying next? He's gone to the cross. He's fulfilled his mission. He's standing before them as the resurrected Lord. He says, all authority has been given to me. What do you think his next word will be? So come on, let's go and... I'm not sure, but I don't know that they're expecting what he did say. He says to these 11 men, he says there are 11 disciples there, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I can tell you what I would have been thinking. I would have been like, are you serious? Have a look at us. There's 11 of us. Go to all nations? All of us? Yes, is right. Thank you, Anne. Amen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. We see, if you like, the, the mission of God, for the glory of his name. We see the method he invites us into, which is the proclamation of the gospel. To call these 11 people and then us some 2,000 years later to give them this charge that we are to go and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That is exciting. That's a great moment for an amen. Amen. Give the preacher some encouragement. He needs it. I want to pull three things out of these two passages that I think are important for us always to remember. Number one, we see in these two passages, as we talk about Missions Month, we see God's glorious perspective. That's point number one. We see God's glorious perspective. What we need to always remember, always remind ourselves and never lose a hold of is His glorious perspective. You know, it's very easy for us to lose perspective. I couldn't help but share this. As a travel website, Suzanne last week talked about her little holiday flat and the ratings it was getting. And we love to put nice comments and sometimes not so nice comments about places we've stayed. But TripAdvisor regularly releases its 20 most ridiculous complaints from its different hotels. I won't take you through all 20, but here's a selection of five. Someone wrote, it was a five-star Indian resort. They said, in India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant, including the hotel, served Indian food. <laughs> this one's from the Novotel in Australia. What do people think about their stay? They said, I won't be returning anytime soon as the beach was too sandy. <laughs> Here's another one. No one told us there'd be fish in the sea. The children were startled. Here's a great one from... Uh, Spain, a hotel, TripAdvisor Hotel in Spain. Someone wrote, there's too many Spanish people. <laughs> the receptionist speaks Spanish, the food is Spanish, everybody is Spanish. And number five, just one more. Someone wrote this, we were so disappointed that we were made to queue outside with no air conditioning. <laughs> I thought that was good. That's classic. Anyway... All of these people were staying at five-star resorts, beautiful locations, exotic destinations around the world, and all of a sudden, their perspective was drawn to the food and the sea and the fish and all of these different things that really count for nothing. We need to remember perspective, and there is a glorious perspective as we think of the mission of Christ, as we think of his mission to glorify his name on the earth, as we think of his method, the proclamation, go and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And I just thought it might be helpful for us to see a few statistics of exactly how this mission or this great commission is going some 2,000 years on. Mark Knoll, who some of you may or may not know, uh, probably the most prominent of modern church historians. He's done a lot of study into the area of world evangelization. <clears throat> Excuse my voice. And he, he makes this statement, and I'll explain how and why he makes this statement in the moment. But he has said, in the last hundred years alone, we have seen the greatest increase and shift in religious affiliation ever, apart from the time that the early apostles were on the planet. The last 2,000 years. He uses statistics. For example, just to mention a few, a hundred years ago, there was less than 10% of Africa that were Christian. He said, now 
and I don't know when the now is, but certainly within the last decade, there is over 50% of the African continent that are Christian believers. He talks about China. He says within a decade, China will be the most Christian nation on the planet. Other parts of Asia, he notes, along with Joel Rosenberg, other reliable reports as well. I've heard this a number of times. All these reports suggesting that more Muslims have become Christians in the last decade to 15 years than in the entire 1,500-year history of Islam combined. God is doing glorious things across the place. This is 2,000 years after the commission, and things aren't slowing down. If anything, things are heating up. A hundred years has seen an increase, the last decade even more so, with the spread of the gospel, with the amount of conversions. If you look at the ones out of the Middle East in particular, it's in the midst of great persecution, but it comes with great supernatural revelation, dreams and visions and healings and signs and wonders, and the gospel is going forth. We don't notice it because in the Western world, we're in decline. But he goes as far as I said to say that the greatest increase in religious affiliation ever, any time in human history, is now. Jesus himself, in Matthew 24, he said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, will be preached to all nations as a witness, and then the end will come. So I think if we're heating up, then we know what we're heading towards. This heating up of the proclamation of the gospel. Here's another interesting fact that I came across this week. And this comes from a, a gentleman by the name of Robert Woodbury. He's a senior research professor at Baylor University in the US. He's done extensive research into the area of missiology, into the impact that missionaries have had upon nations, particularly the transformative effect of the gospel on nations across the last hundred and even, even, even prior to that period. He makes this, he released a paper about five years ago and made this conclusion from his decade plus worth of study. It says the work of conversionary Christian missionaries, and just to define, he doesn't define it himself, but really he's talking about gospel preaching missionaries who focus on the need for personal conversion, for repentance, for belief in the Lord Jesus. The work of conversionary missionaries is easily the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. In his study, which as I said was the last 100 plus years, across the board, he said every nation where there has been a presence of conversionary Christian ministries is more economically developed, there's better health, there's lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher education attainment, especially for women, just to mention a few. Now you can look at the details of his report if you would like. The conclusion is this, as Christianity Today reported, there's a number of articles they've published based upon his research, but one that caught my attention, they said, these missionaries didn't set out to change history, but modern research shows that they did just that. Gospel preaching ministries have literally changed the world, and that is a statistically provable fact. Isn't that encouraging? I'm encouraged. 2,000 years ago, the apostles were known as the ones who turned the world upside down with the proclamation of the gospel. And 2,000 years later, in our day, in our time, the gospel is still just as powerful as it ever was. One other interesting aside from his report, this will be the last fact. I don't normally do facts, but I thought these were too good not to include. 
Back to his term, the conversionary missionaries, he noticed something interesting because obviously there's a number of different types of missionaries, some state-sponsored that would run orphanages, etc. But he said for these conversionary missionaries, all of the positives that they had on social transformation were actually unintended. His conclusion was this, missionaries who focus most on personal conversion and the preaching of the gospel accomplished the greatest national reforms and social welfare. Whereas, in contrast, the more missionaries focused upon cultural transformation or anything else at the expense of preaching the gospel, the less impact they had on the transformation of society. So we could say the greatest way to achieve social transformation is not to focus on it at all, but instead to remember the call and the priority and the power of proclaiming the gospel. We're not here just to fight for the laws of the land. We're here to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, the need for personal repentance and conversion to faith. Why is it, you might ask, that the gospel is so powerful? Well, only the gospel preaches the message of salvation, reconciliation, and only the gospel has a proven track record in terms of practical moral transformation. Look at the Bible. It's full of adulterers, it's full of blasphemers, murderers, who the God has encountered and transformed in such a way that they become proclaimers of his name. Or you could say, look at the free fall, the moral free fall in Western society. How is it that we have got ourselves into such a hole? Not only recognized by Christians, but by secular people as well, by atheists. Well, two reasons. Number one, because for a generation now we have eroded and fought against the Christian heritage of our Western nations. And number two, because the church has forgotten its mission to proclaim the gospel. We've got to come back to the centrality and the importance of the gospel. Not just preaching anything but the gospel, but focusing on that as a primary tenet of who we are. Recognizing there is a power and there is a priority of proclaiming the gospel. Amen. Let us never lose... Oh, you can clap, sure. Thank you, God, for the gospel. Thank you. Let's never lose sight of this glorious perspective of God. Now, there's a second part. Point number two. Never lose sight of God's glorious purpose. So we talked about this big picture mission, but what I love about both of these passages of Scripture, in 1 Peter, he says, God has done all these things so that you, singular, you may proclaim the excellencies. Jesus sits down his 11 disciples and says, there is a glorious call, there's a great commission to go and proclaim the gospel, and it's over to you. See, he has a part for each of us to play in his mission. You have a gift to give for the glory of God. You have a part to play in this incredible perspective of God. You see, Jesus never said to his disciples, he didn't say go and establish churches. Nothing wrong with establishing churches. He didn't say build fancy buildings, have incredible worship, run effective uh, programs, outreaches to the community, send the checks, tick the boxes. He said, no, no, no. You, you go. You go and proclaim. Wherever you're called to, you go and proclaim the good news of Jesus. I've said in the past, I try to resist, but when people come to me and they say, oh, what's the mission program of your church? 
It's a good question to ask. We do support missions. But I'm often tempted to say, well, actually, it's you. It's you. What's the mission program of our church? Oh, it's you and it's me. It's together. But it's singular. It's not just what the church can do. And we want to do a lot of things. We want to support missionaries all around the world. We do. But God has a part for you to play that your life would bear witness to his glory. That you would go wherever he calls you to and proclaim the good news of Jesus. Everybody has a part to play. Everybody has a gift to give for the glory of God. I'll save us some time because I'm running out of time and my voice is running out this morning. But we looked at a few examples in Scripture of people who felt they had nothing. Luke's one example is he writes his letter. And he almost says, well, it just seemed like a good idea to pin these things down. And yet he offered it to the Lord. And the Lord used it extraordinarily for his glory. And so I would ask, what is the one thing, at least one thing, there might be more. But what is the one thing that God is calling you to do to be a part of his mission? Because if there's not one thing, without that focus, we drift in life. We have a tendency to just go with the flow. What happened if Luke did that? What happened if, because he was accompanying Paul on his missionary journeys, if he said, well, I don't have much to give. I'm just a Gentile physician. I'm not going to write anything down. I'll just tag along. We would have missed out for 2,000 years on the incredible gospel of Luke, on the, the book of Acts. Where would we be without the book of Acts? But in the same way that you, in the same way, you and I both have something to give for the glory of God. And we need to find what that thing is. And I would encourage you, if I was to ask you today, if I was to come and say, Adam, what's the one thing that God is really putting his finger on? That's the, good, that's the thing that you ought to do at this time in your life. Could you say, absolutely, this is, this is it. This is what I'm called to. And it might change. Seasons come and go. It might be that you are called to go to the ends of the earth, to South Africa or beyond, to preach, to proclaim the gospel, to unreached people groups. It might be that you're to go no further than your living room and you're to love the kids that God's given you. It might be to be a witness in your workplace, to love someone, to give them a word of encouragement as you make your morning coffee. It might be any and all of the above. But what is that one thing that the Lord has for you? Because he has something for each of us. You are the missions program of this church. You are the missions program of your heavenly Father. He's put you on this planet to proclaim his glory. Number three. So we see God's glorious perspective. We see his glorious purpose. It's a singular. It's 11 disciples. It's that each of us would proclaim the excellencies of the one who's shown us mercy. But the third thing that I would encourage us and remind us of in this area is God's glorious passion. God's glorious passion. May we never let missions be something we do. May it never become a church program. May it never just be the check we send, the box we tick, the service we give. But may missions be, as it is for him, his heart and his passion. You see, John 3.16, we know the passage so well. It says, for God so loved. 
It doesn't say, for God so desired a mission program. For God so desired a people who do things for him. It says, for God so loved. That was the starting point of his mission. That's the starting point of our mission. The mission is love. And love is the mission. Love is the mission. The mission is to love. It's not a program. It is a passion. I want to conclude just by telling two stories that the Lord has used me over the years to encourage me in this area of both the passion but the priority of us being a people of mission. They're both stories from my own life. First story is this. I love my little girls. I've always had a day on Monday, which is my day with them to take them out and about and do special daddy girl things. And so this particular day, some years ago, I had a few of my kids. One was young enough to be in a pram. I was walking with her. The other was on a bike who will remain nameless in case in future years she listens to this particular sermon illustration. <clears throat> but every family seems to have one of those children that just loves to escape. The runners. Anyone have a runner in the family? Yes, I see a number of hands around. Well, we have one child that is our... That was a double hand from the McCallus, but we'll move on. <laughs> Every family has a runner. It's like you enter a public place and their first thought is, where's my exit strategy? How can I get out? And they wait for that moment. You see the glint in their eyes. You turn your back and bang, they're gone. So one particular child we've lost a number of times. She was just gone in public places. And it's never when there's no one else around, is it? It's always when you're in somewhere that you don't know anyway. <sighs> God gives his children to develop grace, I'm sure. So I was going for a walk and this particular child was on her bike and I said to her, thinking back, I was like, what was I thinking? I said, look, just ride ahead a little bit, but don't go out of sight. Now, that's an invitation to go out of sight, isn't it? That's like, oh. So, lo and behold, I'm walking there and she's gone. I'm thinking, oh, I can just see her. And then she's gone and then she's off around the corner and that was it. And I thought, okay, I bet she's waiting around the corner. Went around the corner. There was no child. I went around the next corner. There was no child. I went to the nearby shopping center. There was no child. I was asking everybody, do you know, have you seen a girl? She was lost. She was well and truly lost. She didn't know where we were. I was in panic stations, and it felt like it was probably an hour or two. It felt like an eternity. And I'd looked everywhere I could think of looking. I'd asked anyone who would listen, have you seen my child? Eventually, I thought, I didn't have my phone on me. I thought, I'll head back to the car. I'll get my phone, and I'll call up for some help. Anyone who'll come and help me find my little lost girl. So lo and behold, I made the long trek back to get to the car. And there, as I arrived in the car park, standing right next to the car, with a big smile on her face, was my little darling girl. She said, surprise! I thought, oh, just wait till we get home. There'll be some surprises. Yes, there will. But there was relief, there was joy, there was celebration. And I thought as I pondered that, you know, in that moment of panic that parents, probably most parents have had when you lose a child, there was that thought of, I would do anything to find my child. It doesn't matter what the cost is. You know, my life would be on hold. I would quit my job. This would be my 24-7. I would stop at no expense to find the child that I'd lost because I love her and there's a separation there. No cost is 
too big. And as I pondered that passion of a father's heart, I felt the Lord said, you see that? Now you got it. Now you understand what missions is all about. It's not about a program. It's about the passion of a God. It's not something he does. It's who he is. He's a passionate God. And he invites us to live as, with missions, not as a program, but as the passion. He is so committed to his passion that he gave everything. And he says, what will you give? What will you give? Will you enter into the passion of your father? <clears throat> Here's the second story. I got a call. It's about this time of year, four years ago now. This phone call. It's a phone call you never want to get, but it was from the wife of a good friend of mine, and his name was Pete. He was a guy who I worked with when I had my first job as an accountant. We were excited. We were graduates. He was sitting across from me, and we just connected instantly. Got on well. He loved to lift weights, so every lunchtime we'd go to the gym that was in the building, we'd lift weights, we'd go for runs, we'd talk. We just had a really good friendship. He was a country boy, one of those really rough and tumble, swore like a trooper, but had a heart of gold. Just a genuine, genuine guy. Enjoyed a really good close friendship with him for three years while I worked there, and then as I moved along, contact became fewer and far between. I knew that he'd had a couple of kids. We exchanged messages, we caught up occasionally, but I hadn't really been connected with him for some time until I got this call from his wife and she said, Andrew, I've got to tell you, Pete is dying. In fact, I'm just calling around all his friends to see if there's anybody who might want to come and just say goodbye. The doctors have given him only days to live. And I said, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. I said, I'll be there right away. So I headed, he was at the hospice at that stage, he wasn't conscious, he'd lost consciousness and the story was that he had a, a brain tumour, it was a very quick battle with cancer, the doctors had done what they could to save him and they said, I'm sorry, nothing else we can do and there he was. And you know, I was overwhelmed in that place as I sat beside the bed of a, someone who'd been a very close friend, someone my own age and two thoughts, two realities came to bear. The first reality was... You know, we'd started our careers together, we'd had these big dreams, all these things we were going to do, all this money we were going to make, all this success we were going to have, as you do when you're young. And you know, when you're in that place, there's not much that matters. There really is not much that matters at all. It's not how much money, it's not how successful you were in life, it's really just, did you know Jesus? And the second reality that really dawned upon me was, as I sat next to his bed, <clears throat> was the reality that although we'd been close, although we'd talked about God in a general sense and he wasn't a believer, he'd teased me about going to church, there was not one moment, even in our close friendship, that I'd sat him down and had a serious talk about the gospel in a way that would make him realize how important it was. And so I sat there and I said, Lord, if you would just give me one moment. He's not currently conscious. If you would just wake him up, I will share the gospel with him. I went back a second time that week, that last week that he lived, and there was never a moment. There was never a moment that I had that opportunity to share with him the love of Christ and all Jesus had done for him. I just prayed, Lord, you can reach him even where he is. And that was all I could do. But it left a profound impact upon me for this reason. 
I prayed as a result. I said, Lord, let me never sit beside the bed of a dying friend, not knowing that I have done everything to tell them of your love, to preach the gospel, to tell them of your saving grace. And I would give us that encouragement that missions is a passion, but missions is a priority. Life is a gift. Let's not waste a day. Let's not waste a conversation. Let's not put it off till tomorrow. But let's live with passion and purpose as a part of the glorious mission of Christ from around the world to right here where the Lord has called us to be. I want to pray. I just want you to close your eyes as we finish. And I want to first of all give you an opportunity this morning. I know many of you. I don't know all of you. But if there is anyone this morning, and as you're sitting here with every eye closed before the Lord, it's just you and Him, and you know for whatever reason you are not right with the Lord, maybe that you've never made that dedication. It may be you've never made that decision to trust in Him. You might have heard the gospel preached. You might have never heard the gospel preached. But you've never come to a place where you've said, yes, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you came to die on a cross to save me, to rescue me, to redeem me, to take away my sin and my shame and to restore relationship with my Heavenly Father. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to raise a hand. We had two people, praise God, in the early service who said, yes, I want to make that decision. And I want to give that offer again this morning. Is there anybody, just put your hand up quickly, no one else is watching, who would say today, yes. Maybe this morning that there's people here who would like to recommit their lives to the Lord. Perhaps you've made a commitment, you've wandered away, you know that it hasn't been a priority. As we said earlier, God is a God of second chances. And I believe this morning... He's giving each and every one of us an opportunity. Don't let that opportunity pass. If you'd like to rededicate your life to the Lord this morning, just put up your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. Praise God. I'm hoping that means that the rest of us here this morning, we know exactly where we're going. We're assured of our salvation and our faith, and that's something to give God all the glory for. So I'm praying for all of us this morning that the Lord would inspire those of us who believe in Him in this area of missions. God's glorious perspective, His glorious purpose, and the glorious passion. Mission's not what he does, it's who he is, that we would somehow catch a blaze with the passion of the Father's heart, to live with that passion in the areas in which he has called us to. So God, I pray for us this morning, Holy Spirit, as we conclude this time together, just pray that you'd move in the hearts and the lives of your people. Lord, would you stir us, would you challenge us, would you do whatever you need to do, but Lord, cause us not to be a passion less people. For you are a God of incredible passion, a passion that's so great that it drove you to lay down your life upon the cross for us. 
And would we catch that heart of passion? Would we catch a light with a passion to love you, to glorify you, to honor you, and to see you glorified in this earth until the time that you return again? May we go forth and boldly proclaim the gospel, whatever that might look like for each one of us here. We pray that in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.